eyes on me. Cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see. If you swung back when faced with a challenge that's meant to break you and balance scales, you ain't average. Now throw your hands on three. Gon' put them up for black man. What's good, family? Welcome to another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Corey Gatewood, bringing you that white coat. Uh, today, we'll be rocking with another outstanding brother and Dr. Matthew Anderson. He is a neurosurgeon at Brown University here today to drop a few gems for us. You know how we do on the Black Men in Medicine podcast. So get your bag ready. Matt, love to have you. Glad we're able to get you on the show today. So let's jump right in. Tell the audience a little bit about you and where you're from. So I'm Matthew Anderson. I am from Indianapolis, Indiana. Originally, I um, went to Stanford for undergrad, and then I went to University of Connecticut for medical school, and now I'm at Brown for neurosurgery residency. I'm a PGY6 neurosurgery resident, and I will be going to University of, of Washington in Seattle for my fellowship in endovascular neurosurgery truly no joke with it congrats on the vascular fellowship the seattle community is definitely getting a good one but ever since i've known you you've always been neurosurgeon matt i remember the day before our first classes at stanford you know i was trying to figure out how i was going to get to class the next day on that (laughs) massive campus and you already had your blueprint on how you were going to be a neurosurgeon so ever since i've known you you've been on the mission when did you know you wanted to be a physician I wanted to be a doctor since I was five. <laughs> uh, I was a, a weird kid. I was, came out already. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how, like, I even knew what that... I mean, I, I became interested because there was a physician at my church that um, kind of took me under his wing because I was just, like, a crazy kid. Um, and, you know, he was like, or, let's, you know, tailor this energy into something productive. Um, and then because I said I wanted to be a physician, um, then... My mom put me into like, you know, after school science and math, you know, nerd camp, basically, that I loved. Of <laughs> and um, and so then, you know, when I got to like the harder classes in middle school and high school, I, you know, saw those the, the, the challenges as fun. Like I enjoyed, you know, like putting the, like the theorems that you had to do for geometry and, you know, like the an organic chemistry uh, I enjoyed all of those classes. Um, I don't, and maybe it wasn't because necessarily of like my nerd camp, at, you know, when I was seven. But I think that I, I had a very different view of like how of what math and science was, and and so I enjoyed my math and science classes. So that was very helpful because then, you know, as I became more and more interested in medicine, you know you have to do all these, these basic science classes, you know, just to, to get into medical school, you have to do all these like prerequisites. And so, you know, having like kind of a science and math mind really helped me. Yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, with early exposure, as with most things, we're going to have better outcomes in said activity. But with so many specialties out there and at such a young age, how did you end up on neurosurgery? But I became, I got interested in neurosurgery specifically my senior year of high school because I did a project on Huntington's disease, um, which essentially is a neurodegenerative disease that neurologists take care of. But I didn't like have a vocabulary for neurologist versus neurosurgeon. So in my mind, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Right. Um, and so I, you know, after my first year of, of undergrad, I did research on spinal cord injury in a neurosurgery lab at IU 
and I loved it. I loved every moment of it. I thought it was like awesome work. And, you know, I felt kind of like a little, you know, pinky in the brain or, you know, like a mad scientist, you <laughs> right. know, like yeah. you're like doing all these really cool like experiments. And, and, and so then from there, you know, I did research at Stanford and then I, you know, shadowed different neurosurgeons. Ladies and gentlemen, didn't I tell you this man was different? Matt, you've been locked in a long time on a specialty that even members outside of the medical community know is extremely rigorous. And to add on to that, the statistics of you being a black male going into this field, which we can touch on later, but at any point during this journey, did you ever think of doing something else? So throughout medical school, I kind of like, in many ways, wanted to like other things because, you know, people are always like, oh, you know, neurosurgery is so hard. At my medical school, there hadn't even been anyone that had even applied to neurosurgery um, in like almost a decade. So I didn't really have any, like, mentor- there wasn't a, a residency program at my med school. So I didn't really have much mentorship um, that was really helpful for neurosurgery outside of people saying it's really hard to get in and maybe you should think of something else. Man, where was this energy coming from? You know, I had like one of my deans tell me that I should maybe think of something else because it's just very hard to get in. But because I'm stubborn and I had wanted to do this for forever, I decided to apply. And, you know, I, I did use my resources, though. Right. So I had I had friends that were at other medical schools that had friends that had gone into neurosurgery. And so I had them connect me with them and, um, you know, kind of see exactly how I should navigate this, that, you know, how I should navigate you know, doing sub-internships. I didn't even realize that, like, and I got lucky, like, during one of my my first sub-internship, I didn't realize that you're supposed to have a meeting with the chairman and have him write you a letter um, because no one told me that, right? And luckily, I had a, a co-sub-intern um, that was like, yeah, you just have to do it. Like, even if you haven't really worked with him, you have to, because the, the letter is going to be a composite of the people that you've worked with, and he's just going to ask, you know, them. And I just didn't even know that that was, like, even something I should be doing. Dropping gems, Matt. <laughs> I love it. Now, that's how you navigate a path that hasn't been traveled in 10 years. Is navigating this pathway and experiences like this what fuels your passion for all your diversity work? You know, I've, I've always worked within, like, you know, these 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 diverse situations. So I was, like, the president of the, the Black Medical Organization at Stanford, and then I was the president of SMA, SNMA at um UConn, and then I ended up being the president of the Brown Minority House Self Association. And so I've always had an interest in diversity. And coming to residency was when I realized that there actually isn't, there aren't a lot of people that are doing actual, um, you know, research and, and, um, and getting, you know, funding and things for these, these different programs to increase diversity. And so that's when I got really interested in changing that narrative because I, you know, being the only black man or the only black person in my residency program. Um, and then there's one black attending. Um, you really start to see the lack of diversity once you get to residency, I would say. Residency? No, I would say medical school. You know, Ohio State does a pretty good job. And even our graduating class only had five black males. And I know there's medical schools across the country that don't have any. Um, but it sounds like you had a little more diversity at UConn. How was your medical school experience? Went to a school that, you know, was very much so interested in, in promoting diversity. So I was able to be around black people. That being said, I was the only black man that graduated from my medical school the year that I graduated. 
Um, there were many black women, but I was the only black man. Um, I think that I was the only black man in both the dental and medical school that graduated from UConn. Wow. Those numbers are mind blowing, man. Um, you know, and that, that brings us back to one of the fundamental ideals of you can't be what you can't see which is why our mission to increase, you know, more black men in medicine is so important because we feel it, right? You feel it going through the process and um, not seeing the representation. And that, you know, you start to see these things and, you know, it's, it's, it's really disheartening, right? Because, you know, it's right. not like you can't, there aren't black men that are, are there. And I think even at Stanford, I think I was one of maybe two black men that graduated with a, um, with, in biology, and then I think that I was the only one that went straight through to med school. Like, the, like you and Doc both took time off, and right. Jesse took time off. Mm-hmm. But I think I was the only one that went straight through. Not that, you know, there's any, like, hierarchy and, like, you know, like, if you go to med school right through or take some time off. But it's just interesting to see that these, even at these higher performing institutions, there still is a dearth of black men that are going into medicine. Because you would think at a school like Stanford that attracts, you know, nerds and like people that are you know like very ambitious nerd nation you would have more black men that are doing this but even at a school like stanford you don't have that so um you know you kind of start to see those things as you go through your career and you think how can i change that narrative for me it's important absolutely and we need it you know we always talk about resiliency moments on the show I always say resiliency is the prerequisite for success. Can you talk about a moment, you know, whether that was applying to neurosurgery or somewhere along your residency process where you had to be resilient in order for you to be where you are today? Right, right. Not only did my dean sit me down and say I shouldn't apply, but, you know, one of my mentors who I'd been like shadowing since my first year said that like because I was black and gay that I wouldn't ever match into neurosurgery or it would be extremely hard um, and essentially was discouraging me from applying, you know, I, I called like my, I think I called my sister because I was like, I didn't want to burden my mom with this because, you know, she wouldn't know what to do. And, <laughs> you know, I called my my sister and I was like, ugh, like, what am I going to do? And, and then, you know, essentially like my sister and my best friend were just like, I mean, you can either like listen to them and not do what you want or you can, you can do it. The overall um, resolve came from the the realization that like, I had been, it's not like I just happened to want to, to, to go into neurosurgery. Like I had wanted to do it since I was in, in high school. And so I think that that did have something to do with it because I, it had been at that time, you know, such a, like a lifelong dream that I wanted to do this, but I wanted to at least give it my best shot. Hope you had your bag ready because that was a few more gems for you, ladies and gentlemen. You know, Matt, you bring up a great point in that early investment into a craft. You know, once you begin to identify with something, it becomes harder to just quit, harder to give it up. And so if we can have, you know, our young boys and girls starting to identify with being a physician and developing that resolve, I support it 110%. Because we're going to have to do something, right? The numbers of minorities going into neurosurgery are horrible. In 2010, there were five of 160 black neurosurgeons and four of them left the program. And then in 2019, there were nine and six of them left the program. So, you know, not only is there a problem of cultivating that interest, but it's also the retention in neurosurgery. So I know we can't answer all these 
questions in, in an episode of a podcast. Um, but maybe you can start with, you know, some ways we can look to garner that interest and get more recruitment into the field of neurosurgery. There's, there's different ways to do that, you know, so there's research, which is, you know, essentially the, the currency of academic medicine. And the reason that research is important that you publish the things that you are doing is because if you're able to get published and you're able to, you know, show results of, of the different programs that you're doing, then that will oftentimes lead to more funding and more, you know, people um, doing the things that are effective. Programs should start, honestly, in, you know, preschool, middle school. The programs that I am, I am actively involved in right now are programs for high schoolers, medical students, um, and then for residents. So they're, the, the high school program that I am helping um, to form is essentially a program that will allow black and brown high school students to come to Brown and do research in the neurosurgery department. Sounds lit. What are some of the projects? We have research on spinal cord injury, brain tumor um, uh, research, and then we also have functional neurosurgery, so like epilepsy and, and things of that sort. We also are starting a Center for Innovation in Neurosurgery at our institution, and I'm trying to get a program where we can have high school students get involved in that so they can work on patents, they can work on more translational things that oftentimes people get a little bit bogged down with, with, with basic science research because of how slow it moves. And not that, you know, these different patents are going to move any faster, but they're, they are closer to prime time than, you know, your, your basic science um, research. And, and they're just as important. What kind of support are you getting from Brown to do a lot of this programming? That is one of the big things that we, have, we pushed for. So when we did our George Floyd um, protest march, we, we had about... 500 physicians and um, advanced practice practitioners that came out and supported our march. From that, we then submitted a list of 10 demands um, to the lifespan, which is the hospital that we work through administration. And one of those things was that we wanted diversity. We wanted to eliminate the diversity tax. Drop in gems, Dr. Anderson. The <laughs> diversity tax, yes. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the diversity tax, go into a little bit of detail about what that entails. The black and brown physicians are essentially taxed with doing all of this work and increasing diversity for the, the hospital and for, the, for the, their, their respective departments, but they're not ever compensated for that. It's not the work that they do with diversity is not used in their annual review for promotion. And so we wanted to, we essentially started a working group to help with that diversity program. So like when we go to a, a diversity outreach fair in at Meharry or at Howard or wherever it might be, or we go to the SMA conference, then the department is, you know, pays for that, gives us a, a stipend, which hadn't necessarily been the, the case in the past. Right. They also um, are now using diversity as a um, as a way, like work in diversity as a way for you to get promoted. Because a lot of the times in medicine, especially in academic medicine, because we are doing so much stuff outside of 
you know, our respective fields, then a lot of physicians get burnt out. And I can totally see why that would happen because you're expected to be, to do all the same research that your colleagues are doing, but then also do um, work with diversity. So luckily I have a department that's very, very supportive. So essentially if I come up with a, you know, an idea, they are all about making sure that I, that we figure out how to make that happen. That's love, bro. I'm glad that I'm glad to hear you getting that kind of support over at Brown. We need that kind of support at more programs across the country. But can you speak to an idea or initiative recently that they helped you implement? I wanted to put together a lecture series for specifically for black and brown professors um, in neurosurgery to come and, and speak to us because it's shown that, you know, people that come to to give grand rounds at, at different places. It, one is a way for us to highlight our program, but it's also a way for us to, to um, increase our reach when we are starting to look for more people. So say we need a new tumor, you know, guy, or we need an additional, or, you know, our other one is, uh, is retiring, whatever it might be. We can pull from some of these people that have come and spoken to us and we, and they become less of a, um, it becomes less of a barrier for us to to look for um, diversity for diversity in our hiring process. Yeah, that's a great idea, and I'm sure you know having diversity and in, in, in professors from other places coming, and that's a, a brilliant way to have new ideas infused into the community um, and different lines of thinking. You were also telling me that you had a hand in some of the new interview practices for um, residency. Can you talk about that? For our interviews, I wanted there to be a room that essentially didn't know what you couldn't see anything about the person, uh, you know, in terms of like their pedigree, their scores and things of that sort. It, it changes the way that you look at someone. So say someone had got a, you know, 230 on their boards versus a 245, you know, you're going to look at that person that got a 245 in a better light versus you know, we've the research has also shown that like the score that you get on step one is not predictive of how you're going to do in residency, whether you're going to, to complete it, whatever it might be. And so if we can take away some of these biases in the interviewing process, then we can also increase um, the diversity. So we have a room which specifically doesn't even look at at anything. All they do is they have questions. Um, that they that you know they ask and essentially it's they're they're looking for like a personality fit, which is very important um, when it comes to you know increasing diversity. Uh, the other thing is they they have they have standardized their the questions that they ask so that it's easier for people to compare um, across you know the the different interviews because if you're asking different things, then it just might be that you just didn't ask if you ask. The, everybody the same thing, then it's easier to kind of like standardize how you are, um, are evaluating them. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, clearly you're getting tons of support from Brown for trying to increase diversity, um, in your space in, in neurosurgeries. And we applaud you for that. How about in your clinical training? Do you still feel like you get the same type of encouragement and support? So my second year, I, you know, I was struggling in the sense that, well, maybe it was my third year that he sat me down. One of my, my black attendants, he sat me down. He was like, I feel like you're falling behind. I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And he was like, I feel like you can say I had passed my boards. I had, you know, I'm, you know, essentially going through all the, these different things. And he was like, you know, I feel like 
you know, sometimes when you're in the OR, you don't necessarily, you aren't necessarily, you aren't at the place that I would expect you to be. And it was a very, very harsh um, criticism that I needed to hear. But the other people I felt were, you know, they didn't necessarily feel comfortable saying that to me. So they were like, in some ways, allowing me to like kind of like flounder. And then, and he said that and then was like, what can we do to figure out how to get you up to speed? Um, and he has high, you know, standards, but at the same time, he was right. Like I, I, I even felt like sometimes I, I didn't know what I, what I needed to be doing and how I needed to be preparing for the OR or, you know, whatever. And I felt like he was, he was able to be more candid with me because he knew that like it, he, as a black man, wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be received as like, oh, I am pointing you out or, you know, whatever it might be. And he, he truly did mean like, I, he wanted to help me. And so kind of got me up to speed. And I felt like that was like actually very helpful. You mentioned that this mentor was a black male physician. Do you feel like having his mentorship in particular was uniquely helpful? You know, when I first started here, like, I felt like, there was in some ways like a target against me. Cause I was like always, someone was always complaining about the way I said this or that. Um, and it was, it was helpful to kind of have him to, to talk about some of these things with, because, you know, he had gone through similar, you know, things as a, you know, black neurosurgeon. He was like, well, you know, you have to be, you can't necessarily joke around with people in the same way that other people can. And I, that always has like bothered me overall. People like me, I'm a fun person. Um, but in the hospital it's actually very different because you kind of as assume a leadership position just by the fact that you are a physician, you know? And so your demeanor and the way that you come off to people is just going to in and of itself come off differently. And so having him to kind of talk to you about like, how can I, relate to people, um, still be a leader, but not be like so stiff that I am, you know, not being true to myself. No question about it, man. That makes perfect sense. I'm glad you were able to find that mentorship in a field that has so little diversity. And especially given your previous interactions with other mentors that recommended that you seek another profession because you would be, because you would face limitations being black and gay. On that topic, can you give your perspective and your experiences on being a black gay physician and how that played a role in you choosing your residency, if any? Being being black, it's like everybody sees me like you, there's no way to not see me as black. Right. But there can always be like people that see me that, you know, haven't spoken to me or what, you know, wherever it might be that don't necessarily see me as gay. You know, I remember being on interviews and kind of trying to like tailor down my like gayness around certain, you know, programs. And I never felt like that way here. Like I remember being at Brown and in my interview, like talking about like, cause at the time I was um, dating my ex and like, I was like, you know, I really want him to come and I want him to feel comfortable. And, you know, we, we talked about like, um, there was like a gay bar that we had gone to, um, to get brunch. And, you know, we just felt very welcomed um, into the Providence community. And, and so I say that to say there are in medicine, there are going to be places where you feel like you can really be yourself. And there are going to be places where you don't necessarily feel like you can be yourself. And for me, I knew I needed to be at a place where I could be my full self. 
I'm glad you got that experience with Brown, but do you feel like with medicine in general, you can be your full self? I mean, this the, the medicine is like a white heterosexual male dominated film, uh, field. And, you know, when, when people are, are talking about like, you know, certain things, I'm like, I can't relate to that. Like, you know, like, oh, like, you know, like I'm never going to get, I'm never, it's never going to be like, oh, I accidentally got my wife pregnant or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm not going to have that conversation. Is this something that comes up? Do you find yourself having conversations about your sexual preference at work? I don't know how to say this in like a politically correct way. So you're going to have to like, <laughs> but, but you're I think that like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think people, when they don't necessarily like, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily have like a lot of gay friends. And so then people are very intrusive, like into my like life, my like love life. or like asking me like, Oh, you know, what about, you know, this person? And like, what position are you like in the (laughs) bedroom and like things that I'm like, why are you asking me that? Like that is, it's so bizarre that you would think that like, that is something that we should be talking. These are like, you know, random people that I don't even really know. Like I've never even hung out with them outside of the hospital. And I'm like, you know, I think that that to me has been like the most frustrating thing is that like people are very intrusive into your like love life and, in a very explicit way, like, you know, and you're, it, it, that to me has like been the hardest thing. Yeah. That's um, very bold, man. And, and it's, it's, it's very bold. And it's like, it's not just one person doing this. Like, it's like multiple people that are, that have, you know, asked these things or like, you know, they'll make like weird jokes about, you know, either me being black or being gay or both. And I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to this, but you know, here we are. So clearly staff, but how about patients? Do you feel like being gay impacts your interactions with them? I think that like being gay has really like changed, you know, the way people see me. I think being black has like, certainly patients, like when you go in, I've had many patients think that like, even though I always introduce myself as like Dr. Anderson, because it's just like awkward when, you know, you go in and they think that you're like, they don't even think I'm a nurse. They like, they think I'm like, the janitor or something. And there's nothing wrong with being the janitor. It's just, that's not what I am. Um, you know, in in addition to having a stethoscope and a white coat and, uh, walking with the team of physicians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've never been the, like, you know, all my other co-residents are like, Oh, you know, just call me Jonathan or whatever. I'm like, call me Dr. Anderson because you clearly don't even think that I am like your (laughs) physician, you know, and it's not, it, it truly is not even like in this, like, you know, I am so much better than you or, you know, whatever it might be, or, you know, trying to be like patriarchal, but it's just more so like Mm -hmm. I am, you know, the, the responding physician and I'm taking care of you. And so Mm -hmm. like, you know, there, you know, it, you should know that that's who I am. And that, because otherwise, you know, who do you think is like doing, you know, an exam on you or, you know, whatever it might be. So absolutely. And I, and I honestly, I don't think you need to apologize for that. You, you went to school, you trained, you earned it. Um, you are neurosurgeon, neurosurgeon, Dr. Anderson. So, yeah. I mean, if you pr- prefer to be called that, then I think that I don't think there's anyone should look at you any type of way for that. Um, right. so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, I'm like, I've been through enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's awesome, um, man. Love to, love to hear about yeah. your growth. Um, you know, tell yeah. us a little bit about your couple glow up moments, you know, like new accomplishments you've had or any projects you're currently working on that you're proud of. And- yeah. Glow up, glow up, glow up, glow up, glow up. So, um, 
I passed my my I like we have we we take our boards every year. Um and I got I think 90th percentile on my rim board. Hey, turn up then. Um, yeah, so that was great. Um I know you're now part of Alpha Phi Alpha. Oh uh, gosh. Doc and I did it together. But uh it, it it was very important to me to do this because, you know, as I go through my career, one of the things that I've realized is it's very hard to find um black professionals that are have like-minded um things that like that are community service oriented and that are trying to get back to the community. Um, and, and for me, this fraternity was, was one of the fraternities that was, you know, really giving back to our community. And, and it was important for me to, to be involved in that because, you know, I'm going to go to Seattle and I'm not going to really know anyone there, but I still want to be involved in community service and, you know, giving back to the black community. And right. it was a way for me to eat wherever I go to instantly be able to have a group of brothers that are doing what I have always, you know, had in my heart, you know, like giving back. And, and because, you know, as you get older, as you know, like you don't have time to do everything on your own, right? Like, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're in school, you feel like you can do all these things on your own. But once you get older, you realize that there's only so many hours in the day, you're tired and, you know, work takes up a lot of like energy and, and time and so if you surround yourself with people that are, you know, like-minded, then you're able to do these things collectively. And so you're able to, to really uh, make an impact. And it's not just you doing it. You brought up Doc, your LB. Congratulations to both of you. Shout out to Doc. Um, I saw that you guys both started this um, Instagram live session, Talks with the Docs. Tell us about that. These talks to kind of like bring light to different, you know, health concerns of the Black community. And so that, that's been something that's been very fulfilling, I would say, um, because, you know, we are reaching out to so many different people and talking about things that, you know, people wouldn't have otherwise been, um, you know, necessarily talking about. So our first one was, was on mental health in the black community. Our second one was on COVID and the vaccine and, you know, and then our rest was on male infertility. So that has been something that's great. That's come out of alpha, um, and, you know, that I, you know, I'm proud of, I guess that's another glow up thing. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they just keep it coming. <laughs> I would be remiss not to give my brothers a shout out. Um, you know, proud member of Phi Beta Sig fraternity. I'm biased, but the greatest yeah, fraternity yeah. in the world. But um, yeah, I, lo- I love to hear it. I love to hear it. Um, but man, I mean, with fraternities, giving back, you know, trying to fight the diversity tax, be a neurosurgeon, man, what do you do for downtime? How do you find ways to detach and stay connected with Matt Anderson? Yeah. Um, so I, the one thing that I will say is I have always been a person that is like, I, well, I wouldn't, I don't want to say always my second year. I was like, very, like I was too focused on work and, you know, doing worse things that like, I wasn't, doing the things that made me happy. Right. So, so I enjoy working out, like going to the gym, running, um, cycling. Um, I enjoy doing those things. So I try to make it a point to, to work out for at least an hour, four to five times a week. Um, I have a Peloton. So on days that I know I'm going to be in the OR for a long time, I'll try to wake up, um, early to do a Peloton ride, uh, before I go into work. Um, otherwise I'll go to the gym, 
excuse me, when it's warmer outside, I like to run. Okay. So that's, you know, something that's really important to me. On my weekends off, I love to travel. Like, I'm like, I now have a ski pass. I'm going to go skiing next weekend. Hey, um, where are you going? You know, during the winter, it's like, uh, I'm going to Killington, okay. uh, which is in Vermont, I believe. Yep. So I'm excited about that. I have, like, the, the ski pass is essentially for all of these mountains throughout the East Coast. Um, and then also, there we have a week, um, I think it's in Aspen or something. So I probably won't use that whole week in Aspen, but I'll go for, like, a long weekend to, um, to Aspen. So I love to travel. Um, one of my goals for residency was to finish going to all 50 states. So I think I've been to 44 states now. So I'll probably finish that list off by the time I'm done with residency or fellowship. I think fellowship because I'm going to go to Alaska when I go to Seattle. Um, but yeah, so I, I enjoy traveling. Um, and then I love to read. Like I, I um, think I've been through like 20 or 30 books this year. So that's impressive, man. Uh, on top of all yeah. the other literature that you're reading and writing and trying to stay up. <laughs> exactly. I need to, I need to exactly. get on your schedule, man. I, I, you must be cheating. You must have you know, 28 hours in the day or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> well, to be fair, I listen to all my books. Yeah. Like, so I, I don't like sit and open them. So like, I, I listen to my books, like while I'm at the gym or okay. riding my bike into work, mm-hmm. um, you know, wherever, whatever it might be. So that is one, like, I guess life hack. Yeah. <laughs> What's the last book you've read? The last book I read was this book called before we were yours. And it was basically about these kids that were poor and they're like, um, and then they got, essentially kidnapped and then sold to these like richer families. Um, and it's actually based on a true story. So it was very interesting and enlightening. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think there were some certain points of the book that were a little bit wordy for me, but overall I thought it was a really good read. So. Yeah. Love to love to hear it. Sounds like you're finding ways to stay balanced, you know, and amount of all you do. Yeah, trying my best. <laughs> you no, know, a big a big topic now is you know, um, in which I, I must admit I'm sipping the Kool Aid is like you know mindfulness and, and meditation. You know, I'm doing an advanced competency in integrative medicine and. Mm-hmm. Going through the practices that we're required to do as part of the class, it's been extremely powerful going through the residency process where a lot of the variables you have no control over. Like, you know, you send out your applications, you have no control over who gets back to you. And right. then once you send me your rank list, you have very little control of where you match, you know? So right. you, um, I think the power of, you know, staying in tune with, you know, what, what you can control and um, what brings you joy, uh, I think it, the practice has been very powerful in, in reinforcing that. And another thing I would add to that is gratitude practice, which, as you can imagine, if you're able to relive scenarios of someone doing something positive for you that helped your life out in some form or fashion, of course, that's going to bring you feelings of joy and, and have positive impacts on your mental health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But just as important is you experiencing or reliving moments when someone gave you your flowers while you're still here, them telling you how you have positively impacted them or how you have improved their life in some capacity. Outcome health oriented metrics like cardiovascular risk or heart health are improved when people devote energy to these exercises. And that's exactly what they are. 
Um, you have to be invested in order to see a benefit. Just like if you want to get a six pack, you have to do sit-ups or if you want to see strength in your chest, you have to do push-ups or bench press. So if we can find time to devote effort to these practices, I think they can be extremely valuable, especially in moments of high stress. Um, if you want to find out more about meditation or, or gratitude practice, I'd recommend Kabat-Zinn. Uh, it does a lot of work in the meditation space. Or Dr. Andrew Huberman, who has a podcast that speaks to gratitude practices in great lens and how it's beneficial. Because, you know, these skills are important to everyone, you know, not just people in medicine, you know, legal, underwriters, you know, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, like these are stressful times and these practices are something that I believe we should keep at the forefront of our mind. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like you said, residency can take over your life because it's just, it's so many hours, um, you know, you're always at the hospital. But I do think, like you said, it's important to like really take, step back and think about like, what are the, you can't do everything that you had previously done, right? Like it just is impossible, but you should find, you know, at least one thing, one or two things that you find enjoyable outside of residency to help to like bring you back to, um, to yourself, right? Like, cause you know, you're giving so much of yourself when you're in the hospital and you want to be able to do that. The way to do that most effectively is by allowing yourself to, um, to disconnect, you know, from the hospital. And, and like you said, there are going to be a lot of different things for me, like prayers, my way of like meditating, um, you know, because it kind of helps to center my thoughts and, you know, how I want to, you know, go about my day, but you, you should find whatever it is, you know, that like helps you to like, so if, if meditation is good for you, if yoga is better for you, if, you know, whatever it might be that, that helps you to kind of, um, yeah, that helps you to be a better, you know, your, to be a better you, then that you should do those things. You know, we always have a lot of pre-medical students um, and medical students listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, being where you are right now, um, getting ready to start fellowship and in very, very short time being attending, you know, what's a, what's a gem you would give to some of those students listening in, in terms of getting through medicine and being successful on this path? Yeah. You know, honestly, I think one of the biggest things that I have realized over the years is that medical school is very hard. It's not an insurmountable challenge. But one of the things that I do think is important um, as you are in medical school is enjoy each step of the of the journey. You know, I think oftentimes as as medical students, we're very type A. I'm very type A, yeah. if you didn't get that <laughs> yeah. from this the last 50 minutes. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to really, like, sit and, like, think about, like, where you're at and just, like, enjoy the time that you're in. You know, enjoy those four years of medical school. Or, and, like, you can even split that up into, like, enjoy the first two years when you're in the classroom. Like, it's probably going to be the last time that you're in a classroom like that ever again in your life. And it's like, okay, you know, like... It, there are times when it sucks and whatnot, but like enjoy those times. And then, you know, when you're in third year, it's going to be the last time, honestly, that you can be like, oh, I don't really know that, you know, that you can really show that you don't know things and like, and it not be, not be like detrimental to like your overall like career and whatnot. You know, so I think that like, if you sit and, and think about every step of the way and, and you, and you really try to enjoy each portion, then you become more grateful of the experiences that you're having 
Um, there are times to be thinking about those things, but there's also times to just sit and enjoy where you're at, right? And 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 there's nothing wrong with that. So drop in gems, man. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's what's up, man. But before I let you go, there's one question that I ask to all the guests that come up on the show. What are the three principles that have been pivotal to your success to date? Ooh. Um, <clears throat> principles. One is I, I have always been um, taught to, to work hard um, because you can be smart um, and you can be, um, you, you know, you can get along with people. But if you don't work hard, then especially in neurosurgery, but I honestly think, you know, in any, even if you're not in medicine, I think working hard is always important because, um, it shows not only that you care, but it also helps you to like find um, your find purpose. So I think working hard has always been perseverance. Um, you know, that's been like the name of the game, man. Like it's just like this residency is so long, and you know, you just really you really have to persevere and realize that like there is a reason for all these things. And then I, you know, I think that the last one was one uh, piece of advice that my my aunt um, gave me. Um, she, I mean, she didn't, it was not like a saying, but basically like, if you're having a bad day, that doesn't mean that everybody that you come into contact needs to have that same bad day as you. And and she means that in the sense of like, just because you're having a bad day, doesn't mean that you need to be grumpy with everyone. Like, okay, you can be mad at yourself or whatever, right? But that doesn't necessarily have to be how you treat everyone else that comes into contact with you that day. And I think that that's important, um, especially again in medicine, because you know, as a physician, you are just automatically a leader in the hospital. And if you put your, you know, personal gripes and things onto everyone else, it's one going to be hard for you to, to work with you. And then two, it's going to make everyone else's day worse. And, and that never, you know, ends up being a good thing for the patient. So I try my best to not put my bad day onto other people. Um, and then working hard has <laughs> always been my mantra. You know, if you're working hard, then you can't, no one can be, you can't be mad at yourself and no one can be mad at you for the job that you've done because you're putting in all the effort that you can to, to give the best care that you, you, you can to each and every one of your patients. So, right. It's working hard, perseverance, and limiting your emotions to yourself. I love yes. it. Three gems from Dr. Matthew <laughs> Anderson. Told you, ladies and gentlemen, we had a we had a go in the making. Uh, came on here and lit it up. <laughs> love to have you on the show, man. Appreciate you coming Thank on. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Of course, of course. So, <laughs> well, I definitely have to have you back. Um, you know, we can only get so much and so and so little time. Um, but I know yeah, you, yeah. Have, you have plenty of wisdom, and we could all learn from. So, if you want to find out more about what we're doing with the Black Men in Medicine movement. You can check us out at www.blackmenandmed.com, www.blackmenmed.com, where you'll see highlights of black male physicians holding down the mission to serve in the hospital and surrounding communities. We provide a platform for medical doctors down to the pre-medical level to get connected with mentorship, scholarships, and collaborative medical projects. We are here for change. We are here to stay. Let's get connected. Make sure you tune into another episode of the Black Man in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms.